Hello, and welcome to the City Grace Podcast. We're so happy you've decided to join us today as we learn how amazing it is to follow Jesus. Enjoy the message. But again, happy Mother's Day to all of the moms that are in the room. Any moms here, maybe dads too, uh, remember those moments in the delivery room? Y'all remember those moments of rage? What have you done to me? You guys remember that? That sentence was said once or twice, I think, uh, when my kids were being born. Uh, you know, the fear that was there, the excitement that was there, the anxiety, the nerves, the epidural, right? You, you remember all of that? You remember all of the nurses that came to take care? Well, that was later on, but, you know, all of the apologies that were going on, right? All of the broken hand bones, of the delivery, nobody else knows what that was all about. No, Chelsea broke my hand just about. It was just raw and it was real and it was so uncertain and it was a little bit ew, a little bit icky. If I can be a little bit honest this morning, and everything was like it was, but there's something about that process that I know me as a dad and I'm sure you as a mom are always and ever going to cherish, right? Those moments after when everything kind of settled down. The moments after when the pain was starting to leave, you know, and the, the moments after when the fear was gone, it was all over and everybody was okay and you're there in that moment and, and, and you know, you had a way forward, you know, even if there were still some medical challenges, there was now a way forward. You had all of that and then they laid that baby right over your heart. You remember that? You remember that? And as soon as they did, you know, even though you just come through everything you just come through, you said, let's have another one. Well, maybe not right then, but you know, a little ways, a little bit after that, right? And, uh, but no, we're going to come back to that a little bit at the end of this message. But today, um, we're continuing our series on seeing the King or seeing Jesus. And, and we're looking at the public life of Jesus. And really what's amazing about this is we're not looking at the entire life of Jesus. We're actually just looking at the last three years of Jesus's life, everything that he did, everything that he said that is so impacted and changed the world happened in just three short years. That's an amazing thing to me. And, and so we've been looking in this series in our very first week, we looked all the way from the beginning of his public life, his baptism there in front of everyone. And in a, in a week or two, we're gonna be looking at the moment when he was actually crowned the king of the Jews. He was crowned the king over creation, that the creator God had instituted him and installed him as the king, which means that he's the king of everything. And then we're gonna look beyond that at, at the proof that was given that, was, you know, that he was the king over everything. But when Jesus came, and this is kind of what we've been talking about, Jesus was just completely radical. He was such a complete departure from everything that was going on during that time period. He was there in first century Israel and, and he was dealing with the, the, the Jewish people and, and he himself was Jewish and, and, and dealing, you know, with the Jewish religious system, Jewish, dealing with the Jewish temple, which, you know, it's not like our temple where, you know, we might have many temples, one temple on every street corner, it seems like, but for the Jews, there was just one temple and, and he was dealing with that and, and guilt and sin and, and freedom from forgiveness for sins and those kinds of things. And he was just dealing with all of those things in such a new way that for some people it was great news and for other people it was bad news. 
And as we looked in this, in this story, uh, he, he came and he claimed to be bringing a, a new covenant between us and the creator God. And a covenant, we don't use, really use that word anymore. It's in our you know, modern day context, it might be like a contract, but there's this kind of relational aspect to it. And he came to give us this new covenant between ourselves and, and the maker. Like he was telling us, you are made, you are created, you are designed, but you're out of sorts. You're, you're, you're out of alignment with your creator. And so I've come to give you a new way back to your creator. And we're gonna talk about that in our lesson today. But then he gave his followers, those that, those that had entered into the new covenant, he gave them this new command. This one new singular ethic that kind of was the filter for how they were to do life, the filter for how they were to think about their interactions with other people, and the filter for how we think about our interactions with God. And it kind of summed up the whole Old Testament, the whole old part of your Bible, in just like one sentence. And it was far simpler to remember than pages and pages of rules and laws, but it is far more demanding if you're gonna live it out in day-to-day life. And finally, for those that, that got into the covenant the way that he told them they could get into the covenant, for those that embraced the new ethic that he gave to us, he made us into a new family. And you see this metaphor used all through the New Testament that we're a new family. You see the metaphor used that we are a body together, that we are in fact the body of Christ. That when we join the Jesus movement, we're actually joined to each other. We actually come alive together. We're actually interdependent on one another. And we are the body of Christ, the voice of Christ, the hands of Christ to our world to take this incredible message to everybody else around us. But of course, when he comes to introduce something new, just like all of us have problems with change, all of us have a hard time dealing with change. The new that Jesus brought did not sit well with the rulers of the old. The new that Jesus brought did not sit well with the the rulers of the Jewish temple system. And the Jewish temple was this place where heaven and and earth kind of overlapped and intersected. And, and you know, it was the space where the presence of God would interact with people in these really strange ways. And and the the rulers of the temple, they kind of made their living from the temple. So, of course, they had a vested interest in making sure that the temple was still running. They got their power and their authority from being rulers of the temple. That's how they got their control over people and how they would you know, use that to kind of manipulate people as we see by the time Jesus showed up and there had been some corruption that crept in to the religion of the day, but they would use their position as sacred men of a sacred space to kind of control people a little bit with fear. And so Jesus, when he showed up on the scene, Jesus was just dangerous to them. Jesus was telling people, and John the Baptist, who was there right before Jesus and kind of helped launch the Jesus movement, they were telling people, hey, you can have your sins forgiven apart from the temple. Like if you've done wrong and you need to have your sins forgiven, you don't need to go to the temple anymore. You can just come to us and we'll baptize you. Well, of course, if people didn't need the temple anymore, then people didn't need the temple leaders anymore. So this left them on the outs. And so they were, they were really threatened by what Jesus was doing. He was kind of turning them maybe into our modern day equivalent of somebody who invents the world's strongest flip phone hinge. Like you just don't need that anymore, right? Or the guy that prints up Raiders championship t-shirts. You just don't, like they're pointless. They're useless. Nobody needs that anymore. And so Jesus was bringing something brand new to the world. But now when we say new, it was new because nobody had ever seen anybody do what Jesus was doing before, but in fact, they had heard about it before. 
Even though they were an ancient people, 2,000 years before us, their promises were ancient to them. It was ancient promises to an ancient people. And when Jesus showed up, he said, I am here to fulfill your promise. I'm here to give you what you have been waiting for. But they completely missed it because what they expected looked totally different than what Jesus was actually doing. And if we're not careful, the same thing can happen with us. If we miss, if we don't look carefully at the story of Jesus and, and the context of Jesus and, and what it was that he said that he came to do, we can miss what he was here for also. And we can think of Jesus just as a good teacher. Jesus gave us some highly tweetable sayings about morality and, and that kind of thing, but Jesus did not just come to be a good teacher to give us some good tweets on morality. Jesus actually came to put us and our creator God back together. The relationship was broken and he didn't want people anymore just living within a system of rules, but he wanted us to live within a relationship with our maker, our designer, the one who knew us before we were born, who planned our lives. Your life has a plan. Your life has meaning and purpose. You are not an accident. I don't care what your mom and dad told you. God knew about you long before you showed up on this planet. And so what Jesus came to do is it's, it's hugely important for this life. It's hugely important for us finding meaning and, and purpose to our existence. But what's so amazing about what Jesus brought is that it's something that also transcends this life. It actually gives us a quality of life that is worthy of lasting forever. And so, you know, to understand what Jesus is doing, you kind of got to know the backstory. And so you guys are here and I got a microphone. So you're going to have to sit and listen to this story a little bit because you got to know who Jesus was within the context of the backstory and what it was that he said he did. See, these ancient promises to the Jewish people weren't just promises about a God or a deliverer or a king. They were the promises about the God, like the creator of heaven and earth, the creator of space and time and, and matter. And in the book of beginnings, and we could talk about this and listen, there's a whole lot of conflict nowadays saying that, well, science has disproved creation and all that kind of stuff. Listen, it's not an either or thing. There are both and things there. And this might get me in trouble with some people that have been around Christianity for a long time. But look, the big bang doesn't scare me. In fact, the big bang kind of sounds like creation. Like there was nothing and then suddenly everything exploded into existence. Science and God do not conflict. Don't believe all the hype. And I'll just leave that out there for you. But in the book of beginnings, we, we call it the book of Genesis in, in our Bible, it tells us that the creator God spoke everything into existence. He spoke the world and he spoke the sky and the sun and the stars and the sea and the land. He spoke it all into existence. And then once he had created all of that world, that, that dwelling place, that temple, if you will, then he created the crown jewel of his creation. He created us. But it's interesting the language that it uses when it talks about him making us, that he didn't just speak us into existence, but he formed us. There's this idea of touch. There's this idea of intimacy. There's this idea that we were made to look like God and male and female together were made in the image of God. We were made to reflect God's goodness and God's wisdom out into this world. We were made in his image, which means we were made to, to behave like God behaves to think like God thinks, to value what God values, and maybe most importantly, to love as God loves. 
And I could spend time talking about the power of love and why that's so important. But as you know, with love, if we were going to love in the truest sense of what love is, then people had to have a choice not to love. Love has to have a choice or else it's not love. You can't force someone to love you. That's called kidnapping. And you will get arrested, okay? So you can't force someone to love you. So God created us with the capacity to love, which means that God created us with the capacity to not love him, to reject him, to have a choice besides him. And so he placed his image bearers, these man and, man and woman that he formed into the middle of this paradise, in the middle of his creation, and gave them this evidence all around them of his goodness, he made it perfect in that place. I mean, the temperature was always perfect. There was plenty of food and no danger and everything was beautiful and amazing sunsets every day and everybody's hair always combed perfectly. It was just the perfect place. To, that was just a joke, but it, it was the perfect place for people to be and it was the, the evidence that we could in fact trust God, that God was in fact the greatest good. But then God did that thing that makes us all scratch our heads. Right in the middle of this good paradise, God put a tree. And he said, you can eat from all the other evidence of my goodness. You can have it all. But this one tree right here in the middle, trust me, you don't want to eat the fruit from this tree. Or else the day you do, you will surely die. But then something happened. Somebody spoke to God's image bearers and told them a lie about God. They told them that in fact, God really wasn't good. In fact, that God was holding out on them and that if God was holding out on them and did not want them to have the highest good, then in fact, that would make God kind of evil. And if they would eat this fruit that God told them not to, that they could be gods themselves. And they chose to believe the lie. They chose to believe all of the evidence of God's goodness and they chose to believe one voice and they ate what God told them not to eat and they sought goodness outside of what God had told them not to and they walked out of a relationship with the highest love and the greatest goodness and humanity has been paying the price of believing that lie ever since. But here's the thing, God wasn't caught off guard. God knew, it turns out, that we would choose wrong. God knew that we would choose, humanity would choose to believe a lie about his goodness. And he loved us so much that he already had a plan in place for when we chose to believe a lie about God's goodness. But it wasn't a plan to come and blow them up and start over. It wasn't a plan to come and wipe them out. It wasn't even a plan to come and force them to love him now. Because again, that wouldn't be love. But God had a plan in place to win back our love of him. To win back our trust that God is in fact a good God. And we can trust him again. And so God set his rescuing plan in motion. And he waded into the sea of broken humanity. And he picked one guy named Abraham, and he gave this guy named Abraham a promise. He said, look, I'm gonna make you into a great nation, which was an amazing thing for God to tell Abraham because he was old and had no kids when God told him this. I'm gonna make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. In other words, I'm gonna make you more than you are. I'm gonna make you greater than you already are. He says, I will make your name great, and you will, notice this, be a blessing. I'm gonna bless you so that you can 
be a blessing. And he goes on and he tells them, I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And everybody say it with me. And all peoples, oh, come on, that was kind of weak. One more time. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. I'm gonna make you a nation, Abraham. This is gonna be generational. This is gonna go just beyond you and it's gonna trickle down and we're gonna start as a family, but eventually you're gonna become a nation. But through you, I am going to give my creation new evidence that I am in fact good, that I am in fact the highest good and the greatest good. And if they will join you and join your family, then they can experience it also. So Abraham and his family were kind of this open door invitation to the rest of humanity that, hey, you can come and you can be back in relationship with the creator God. But the fact is that Abraham and his family weren't very good doorkeepers. They kept shutting the doors. People were trying to walk in or they could, you know, through their behaviors and their attitudes and the things that they would do, it's almost like they were putting, you know, keep out signs over the door. And the people around Abraham and his family would look at them and they would say, if that's what you're inviting us to, we don't want anything to do with it. If living in relationship with the creator, God makes us act like you and do like you, then we don't want anything to do with him. And God's looking down at his people, the rescuer people, Abraham's kids. And he's thinking, oy vey, my people. They're not representing me well. But what does it say about God's goodness if he throws them away? That's just not who God is. And so God keeps working with them. And maybe more more importantly, God keeps working on them. Anybody glad that God doesn't throw us away, but keeps working with us and on us. And he keeps working with them until finally one day, Abraham's family leaves the land that God had given to Abraham. And they journey down to Egypt and they wind up in Egypt a few hundred years later, enslaved to Egypt. So now God's rescuer people, Now God's invitation people are homeless slaves. And now people really don't want anything to do with what Israel is offering other people. And then things went from bad to worse because Egypt was really powerful at that time and Egypt was really cruel and brutal at that time. And Egypt decided that the Jewish people, Abraham's family was doing such great things for their economy, they didn't want them to leave. And so in order to keep them from staging any future rebellions, Egypt committed a mass act of infanticide on Abraham's family. And all of the male babies born to these slave families, they took them and they would throw them in the Nile River. And then the the king of Egypt, the Pharaoh of Egypt, actually made it a national law. Any Egyptian who saw any slave family with a male baby were to take that baby forcibly from them and go and throw that baby into the Nile River. Maybe and probably and possibly as a sacrifice or an offering to their crocodile god of the Nile who was called Sobek. I don't know if you can see from that picture there, but he has the head of a crocodile. And so of course, God is jealous for his people, angry at what's happening to his people. And so God decides that it's time for him to act. And God comes down and he judges the Egyptians. And he sends this series of not natural, but unnatural disasters on the people of Egypt. And we call them plagues. We, find, we read them as plagues in the Bible. And the last thing that God sends to the Egyptians is the death angel. It's this judgment on the evil of Egypt. 
and what they have done to the babies of Abraham's family. And the firstborn child of every household in the land was to be taken away from that family as an act of God's justice and judgment on their evil. But for those in the land who would trust God, for those who would believe that God was still in fact in some way good and for them, there was a way to escape the judgment that was about to fall on evil. And God told them, you are to take a lamb and slaughter a lamb, just like you do all of the time for food. And this lamb too, you're gonna take and you're gonna eat this lamb in one meal, in one night. But then in this strange symbol of your trust in me, you're gonna take the blood of this lamb and you're gonna paint the doorposts of your home with the blood of this lamb. And it's gonna be a symbol of your trust that I am merciful and I am good. And that night, the angel of death was going to pass over those houses. The angel of death was gonna pass through the land. But everyone who had the blood of the lamb on their doorpost would escape God's judgment on evil and on the evil nation. And so Abraham's family, who by now were in, numbering into the hundreds of thousands, maybe over a million, they were now not just a family, they were now a nation. That night, they slaughtered and they ate a lamb. And that night, they painted over their doorposts with the blood of this lamb and this strange symbol of their trust in God. And that night, they waited as God sent his judgment over Egypt. And every single house in Egypt where there was no blood over the doorpost, the firstborn of that family was taken. And there was not one household that escaped God's judgment. And in the middle of the night, Pharaoh just can't believe what's happened even in his own palace household. During the night, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, up, leave my people, you and the Israelites. Get out of here. I can't believe what you have brought on us. And the Egyptians, the, the common people in Exodus 12, 33, it says they urged the people to hurry and leave the country for otherwise they said, we will all die. And so on, out of God's judgment on evil, out of God's judgment on the evil and the injustice that had been done to this nation, they escaped the enslaving forces of Egypt. And the family of Abraham had their exodus, their exit from the land of Egypt. And it happened at the time of Passover and the time of Exodus. Everybody say it with me. Passover and Exodus. One more time. Passover and Exodus. And for the rest of their existence as the Jewish people, and even today, Jewish people celebrate the festival of Passover but not just as a memory of the judgment that came on Egypt, but a memory of their own freedom. This was the night that a family became the nation of Israel. This was the night that a family became something that they had never been before. But see, although this was the beginning of Israel's story as a nation, this was just the beginning again of God's story of a rescue for all of humanity. Israel was rescued to become the rescuers. This wasn't just about God playing favorites with all the people in the world because it was supposed to be through these rescuers that all the rest of the people of the world were to be blessed. God still wanted to bless and rescue all of the people, all of his creation, every single one of us that were made in the image of God. But this first generation of Israelites or Jewish people, just like their earlier ancestors and just like generations after them, they would forget 
their God and they would forget their calling. And time and time again, in an endless cycle seemingly, they themselves would need rescue from more and more calamity. But God would always remind them of this ancient promise. There's going to be a day, Israel, when I'm going to set you free forever. There's going to be a day when I'm going to break the cycle and you will never more be enslaved again. I'm going to send you a king, a rescuer king, and he is going to rescue you forever. And his kingdom will never end. And his peace will never end. And all of your darkness will be turned to light. And he told him this through a preacher named Isaiah. He said, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. Isaiah chapter 9, on those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. For, in verse 6, for to us a child has been born. To us a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor. This, this son, this child that is going to be given, somehow he is going to be called Mighty God. This son that is going to come to rescue you, somehow his name will be called the Everlasting Father and you will know him as the Prince of Peace and of the greatness of his government and peace. There will be no end, no end. He will reign on David's throne. To them that meant so much. David was the king over the time of their greatest prosperity. David was their king, uh, was the king over their time of, of greatest national history. And this son, this child was going to come and reign in the manner of David and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. Justice, again, peace forever. A forever kingdom with a forever king. That was good news. That's the best kind of news. To an enslaved people, that sounded amazing. To a people who were constantly at war, to a people who were continually mourning the loss and the death of sons and husbands and fathers, this was the best kind of news. But they kind of kept forgetting the larger story, that this just wasn't supposed to be good news for them. But in fact... Their rescuer king would come to rescue everyone else as well. And so we fast forward 1,500 years from that first Passover night and Jesus shows up on the scene in Israel. And it turns out Israel has forgotten the story again. The nation has turned introspective again and they're under Roman occupation again. They're brutalized by another regime. They're brutalized by another kingdom. They're, they're taxed by the Romans. And again, the Romans are robbing them of a future. They actually embraced and welcomed the Romans at first to defeat a different enemy. But then it turned out that Rome was even worse than the enemies that Rome got rid of. And the boot of Rome was heavy and they were cruel and revolutionaries had tried rebelling, but they had been crucified. And the people were wondering, where is our king? Where is our rescue? When will God come in justice again? When will there be another Passover, a new Passover, where God will bring judgment on what enslaves us? When will there be a new exodus? When will there be a new time when God will lead us into a reality that we have never known before? And every year, and maybe especially during times of oppression, this family nation of Abraham would celebrate Passover celebrate new exodus and they would remember that one day our rescuer king is coming. 
One day, our forever king is coming. And they called him Messiah. One day, Messiah is coming to set us free. And then one day, John the baptizer, John the Baptist stepped onto the scene and to a crowd of thousands of people who had gathered to hear John announce that the king was in fact coming, that the king was almost here. To crowds of thousands who filled the little basin where he was, John said, hey, you're all looking at me, but stop and turn and look right there. Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he pointed to a man, and to us in 2018 Western America, we think, why in the world would he call somebody a lamb? But to the Jewish people, in their mind was the theme of Passover. It was a lamb that would be slain. And through the blood of the lamb, we can escape judgment from evil. The lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's the Passover lamb. It's new Passover time. It's new Exodus time. Our king is almost here. Our Messiah is almost here. It is time. And John pointed to Jesus and said, there he is. Your king is here. Your king is here. And then Jesus proceeded to confuse everybody. Jesus proceeded to confuse and confound all of their expectations. There was no military revolt with Jesus. There was no rebellion against Rome with Jesus. He hung out with poor people. Everybody knows you need money to fund a war, Jesus. Why are you hanging out with poor people? He hung out with sick people. Crowds by the thousands of sick people would come to where Jesus was. And people were thinking, why in the world would you be rounding up the sick people? They can't fight. They're not going to lead a rebellion against Rome and and set us free. Jesus, you're, you're hanging out with the uneducated people. They're not even smart enough to know which end of the sword to hold. Like, why in the world would you surround yourselves with uneducated people? And then these irreligious sinner people, the ones that they're just, they're doing wrong and they've done wrong for so long, they've just given up. Like people who want nothing to do with temple, want nothing to do with religion. And Jesus, you keep inviting them and welcoming them onto your team. And if you keep letting sinners on the team, then God's not gonna help us anymore. So what in the world are you doing? And Jesus wasn't doing what they expected Messiah to do, but Jesus was doing all of the things that proved that he was the Messiah. See, in other words, their expectations didn't line up with reality. This didn't look like a rebellion against Rome. It looked like a rebellion against re- religion, maybe. It didn't look like a rebellion against Rome. It looked like a rebellion maybe against the temple, maybe against the social class system, maybe against the way that we thought of sinners and how God feels about sinners. And for so many people of Jesus's day, it was disturbing that he was doing all of these things. But for so many more that had been pushed to the edges for so long, what Jesus was talking about was the best kind of news they had ever heard. That we who have been on the outs for so long, that we who had stopped even going to temple or hoping of a new relationship with our creator God, Jesus is inviting us back into a brand new existence that we just didn't think would ever be in our futures. It was good news. It was good news. So Jesus walked around and he gave hope to the marginalized. And every time that he would welcome a sinner into his party and into his movement, they would, they would, they would have a party. 
They would throw a party. They'd eat and they accused Jesus of being a glutton and a drunkard. And people would be dancing and celebrating when Jesus would welcome sinners into his company. But the amazing thing was these sinners who came to Jesus, their lives were being changed. Prostitutes were coming to Jesus one after the other. And after they met with Jesus, they, they seemed to have this new sense of self-worth and they, they changed who they were and they changed the way that they behaved. The tax collectors who would collect taxes for the Romans and were notorious for collecting more than the Romans really needed and pocketing the difference, stealing from their own people. When they came to Jesus, they would actually turn back around and go back to the people they had robbed and apologize and give them back the money that they had taken. People's lives were being changed by Jesus and his good kind of news. And although it was good news for some people, for the religious leaders, this was bad news. Jesus, we're the religious leaders. Jesus, we know how this is supposed to work. You're forgetting about the cycle. We get in trouble. We ask God for help. He rescues us by whooping up on all of our oppressors and enemies. And then we're back to business as usual so that we can get into trouble again. And Jesus says, no, I came to do something better than that. I, I'm not just going to leave you free until the next big bad guy comes and enslaves you, but I have come to give you an eternal kind of life and an eternal kind of kingdom. And this, in fact, is what God's kingdom is supposed to look like. But they couldn't wrap their brains around it. They just, they were at odds with Jesus. They just, it just did not line up with their expectations. Even the ones that knew the ancient promises, even the ones that knew the ancient signs of what Messiah was supposed to look like and what Messiah was supposed to do, and even those that saw that those signs lined up perfectly with what Jesus was offering, they just could not come to terms. And John, one of Jesus' closest followers, he tells us about a private meeting one night between one of these religious leaders and Jesus himself. And he comes to Jesus at night because he just can't figure out why in the world Jesus keeps doing what he's doing. And John tells us in John chapter three, now there was a Pharisee, one of the religious leaders, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. And he came to Jesus at night. Why? Because he didn't want anybody else to see him coming to Jesus. He came to Jesus at night and he said, Rabbi, or teacher, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. In other words, it must be you. You must have something to do with that Messiah. Because we've seen people work miracles before. We've seen people do healings before. But you're doing the signs of the Messiah of our rescuer king. And we just can't seem to reconcile what we expected Messiah to do with what we see you actually doing. We thought you were gonna come and bring judgment on Rome like God had come and brought judgment on Egypt. We thought you were gonna come and lead us to freedom from what was enslaving us. And you don't seem to be leading us away from Rome and their oppression. In other words, it's supposed to be all about us again, Jesus we all just bought baseball caps that say, make Israel great again, Jesus. We're not even thinking about the others, Jesus. We're not even thinking about God's rescue operation anymore, Jesus. We're not even thinking about the fact that when we do seem to gain national freedom, we figure out new ways of messing it up again. And the thing, us, the thing is, we in this room, we kind of know what that's like, right? 
Us in this room, we're, we're free, but we all have habits and behaviors that have robbed us of our happiness. We all have habits and, and behaviors that have promised happiness and given us happiness for a night, but left us with scars for a lifetime. We all have things that we thought we had left behind, things that we had thought that we were over, but just at the most inopportune times, it seems like this thing pops up again or that thing kind of sneaks up on you again every time this happens or that happens. We all have a little Israel in us, don't we? And I want God to be my rescuer. I want God to make me free, but free to do what I want to do. And I'm not so sure I want to go through the process of him making me free to do what is actually best for me and for the people around me. And Jesus looks at Nicodemus and he tells him, listen, very truly, I tell you, I'm going to give it to you straight, Nicodemus. No one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. You're not going to be able to understand what I'm doing. You're not going to be able to take in all of the meaning and the actions and everything that I am here to accomplish. You can't see past how you think this should look. You can't see past how you think God should come and work for you. You can't seem to get past your old expectations of religion. You can't seem to get past your old you know, role and relationship with God and the same tired understanding that you have had for years and it has left you empty and failed you time and time again. Nicodemus, Jesus is saying, like, come on. You need to be reborn. You need a brand new beginning. You need a brand new way of seeing the world and seeing good and, and seeing evil. Not just that we are good and they are evil, but maybe there are parts of me that are good, but there are parts also of myself that are evil. You need to see what I am up to with an innocence and a purity and a simplicity that life so often seems to take away. You need to be born again. And you can almost hear Nicodemus, you know, make a little embarrassed chuckle before he asked this next question. And he asked Jesus, well, how can someone be born when they're old? Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Surely that's not what you're talking about, Jesus. Once you're as old as I am, Jesus, let me, let me break it down for you, Jesus. Once you're as experienced as I am, Jesus... Once you've seen the corruption that comes in when politics and religion mix, once you feel the weight of Rome's boot on your neck, once you have lost loved ones to evil and to injustice, once you have had someone break your heart, once you've had someone walk away when they promised you they never would, how in the world, Jesus, do you expect any of us to start fresh? We don't get a second time around in the delivery room. And all of the mothers said, thank you, Jesus. Especially at my height and weight. We don't get a second time. We don't get another pass at excitement and anticipation of all that life can be. Once a person is old, they are what they are. Once a path has been chosen, a tiger cannot change its stripes. But Nicodemus was forgetting who he was talking to. This was the king. This was the rescuer. 
This was the son that was given, that would somehow be called the mighty God. He was forgetting his own story of the beginning when God stepped into darkness and spoke, and in the middle of darkness came a light. He was forgetting his own national story that into the darkness of oppression and slavery, God had stepped again and miraculously brought light to their darkness and restored a future to people who had seemed hopeless. Nick, you've forgotten who you're talking to. And Jesus tells them, very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Nicodemus, there's a new way into this new thing that God is doing. There's a new way to escape the judgment that is coming on evil. And it's this new birth. It's a new beginning to your old life. And it's a birth of water and Spirit. It's a moment in time, Nicodemus, that no one else can give you, but I can that no one else can create for you, but I, as the maker of heaven and earth, come to you in person for your rescue. I can create something brand new for you because I created everything new to begin with. It's a moment in time, Nicodemus, even once you're old, when innocence can be restored to your guilty soul. It's a moment in time, Nicodemus, when although your past and your behaviors and your addictions have left you hopeless, I can give you a brand new hope. I can open up possibilities and light to your darkness that does not exist without me. I can make you new, Nicodemus. And I'm not talking about the natural kind of birth and the natural kind of life that got you to where you are. Because flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. This is a spiritual birth, Nicodemus. It's a way for you to have your spiritual eyes opened up to the reality of evil around you, to the reality of evil even within you. It's a way to have your eyes opened up in innocence and in purity to see the possibility of something that you have never been before. Nicodemus, this is new Passover. Nicodemus, this is new Exodus. This is God's new kind of kingdom that will last forever and ever and ever. And it's Passover to escape the judgment that's coming on the evil, but not just the evil done to you, Nicodemus, the evil done by you, where your sins can be forgiven. That every time that you have ever lashed out at someone and cut them with your words, I can forgive you, Nicodemus. Every time that you have walked away from someone when you promised you wouldn't, I can offer you forgiveness and a brand new beginning, Nicodemus. Every act of selfish indulgence that you have done in taking from someone else, I can help you find freedom from that past and that memory. Every act of hate that you have had, every pang of jealousy that you have felt at the good that comes on someone else, I can help you escape the judgment for your sins. You don't have to live in slavery to your past. You don't have to be who you you always have been. You don't have to be who your dad was, who your mom was, who everything around you and your circumstances tell you you have to be. I can make you new. Come on, can you clap your hands in appreciation to the only one that can make us new again? 
Nicodemus, new Passover and new Exodus is here. It's the way into the new kingdom and this is how you enter the kingdom. And Jesus knows he's blowing Nicodemus' mind. He, he, let, me, let me put it the, another way, Nicodemus. You know when it's really windy outside? And you try and anticipate the wind, but you know, it just seems like the wind's blowing everywhere, right? And, and he says, the wind blows wherever it pleases, Nicodemus. You can hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. And if anybody should get the reference to wind, it should be us here in Fairfield. Can I hear an Amen. I've seen people walking in strong wind. And if I didn't know that it was really windy outside, I'd think they were drunk, right? But we do know it's windy. Why? Because we hear the sound and it's blowing through the trees. And we step outside and we, heal, we, we feel the effect of the wind and it's, it's nudging us this way and we're trying to walk over here and then the wind's kind of pushing against us that way. And Jesus is telling Nicodemus, this is why you can't tell what I'm gonna do next and where I'm gonna go next and what I'm gonna say next because the wind that is guiding your selfish ambitions is not the same holy wind from heaven that's guiding me, but it is in fact the breath of heaven, the wind of heaven is blowing through me and on me. And he says, Nicodemus, so it is with everyone born of the Spirit that we are all directed and guided by the wind that comes from God, God's new kingdom, and God's rescuing work, and God's restoration of our original purpose in life. But Nick's mind is blown. I mean, he's Jewish. He thought he's automatically in because he's Abraham's family. He can go back on Ancestry.com and trace it up several levels and find Abraham there. He thought because he's Abraham's great, 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 grandkid. And that was totally accurate, the number of greats I said. You know, fact check me. He thought because he was that, that he would automatically recognize God's new plan. But now, honestly, he's confused. Now, honestly, here's the Messiah telling him he's not in the kingdom. He's actually outside the kingdom. He's a little bit worried. He's probably, if he's like us, even a little bit offended. Like when someone tells us that maybe we're not as far along or as good with God as we thought we were. See, I think this is where we can probably relate to Nicodemus the most, right? Because honestly, our own interactions with Jesus haven't always been a clear and predictable exchange, have they? We, we knew about this thing called prayer, and so we, we said prayers. We prayed. We prayed hard sometimes. We asked people who we know and love and trust to pray with us, but it seems like some of those prayers, they, they weren't answered. Like maybe most of those prayers were never answered. We get this ancient book, and you know, what's that all about? And we try and read this ancient book, and we fall asleep by page five. Yeah, it's laughter because it's true. Come on, somebody. And -and so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat. Come on, you guys. Give it a break. Like, let me get to an action sequence somewhere. Please, laser guns, you know, next revision, the sequel, right? Make it a little bit with the special effects of the Avengers, if you would, please. And this idea of faith. And believing, especially in our modern context. See, believing is what you do with your mind. Like you give me evidence to my eyes, you speak evidence into my ears, and I'll choose whether or not my mind believes you. That's faith to us. But in the Bible, the the concept of faith was totally different. 
It was this trust thing. Like where even, even when you don't see evidence, even when someone can't give you proof or maybe won't give you proof, that you trust fall back into what a good God would speak to you. Jesus, it's so confusing. And baptism, why does Jared keep talking about baptism? I wish Jared would stop talking about baptism because I know I need to be baptized, but I'm kind of just pushing against that a little bit. Grace, I knew a grace back in grade school, but I don't know what this grace is all about in mercy. Why do I need mercy? And we, like Nicodemus, we look at Jesus and we hear his words and we ask, how can this be? I don't understand how the one relates to the other. I don't understand how this spiritual new kind of birth can relate to being part of what you are doing, Jesus. And John is writing all this. We're in John chapter three. John was one of Jesus's closest followers. And John at this point, or down by verse 16, he actually steps outside of the story. You know, like when you're reading a book and the characters are doing something, but the author wants you to know a fact that one of the characters doesn't know? John pulls us outside of the story, outside of the conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus because he doesn't want us to miss what Jesus is saying. He wants us to understand exactly what Jesus is talking about. And so John in verse 16 puts it into context for us all and he tells us, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And from the beginning of his letter, John has been tying all of these themes together. Themes that don't make a lot of sense to us in America in 2018, but to Nicodemus and to the Jewish people, these themes made plenty of sense. And in John chapter one, he tells us about Jesus, that he is the light for all the world. John tells us about Jesus, that he is the lamb that is given so that judgment can pass over us. In chapter two, John takes us to where Jesus is cleansing out the temple. Jesus is bringing judgment on the things that enslave people, even if what was enslaving people was a broken and corrupt religious system. And then finally, in John chapter three, he tells us that Jesus is the gift that Isaiah promised. He is the son that has been given. He is the rescuer king come to bring God's kingdom of peace. Just like the Passover lamb, that God has in fact given us his one and only son. The lamb was innocent. The lamb didn't do anything. The lamb hadn't committed the acts of evil, but the lamb was a sacrifice that was eaten to build the people up, to prepare them for what God wanted to do for their future. The blood of the lamb was a symbol that judgment could pass over because they trusted in God's strange plan that somehow in the lamb, somehow in Jesus, God was making a way for Jesus or the lamb to die in our place. And when judgment comes because of the evil that we have done in our own lives, and isn't it interesting that we all admit that we've done sin, I could ask right now in this room, in this moment, who here is perfect? And none of us would raise our hand. If anybody did raise their hands, we'd all know they were lying. Can I hear a good amen in church? By the same token, if I was then to ask who here is a sinner, none of us would want to raise our hands. 
because of the condemnation that we feel under that term, because of the judgment that we know we deserve because we've hurt others, we've taken from others, we've lied to others and let them down, we've taken things that didn't belong that we can never restore, and we know that justice is deserved. I mean, hey, if people do an injustice, injustice to us, we don't want to see them get away with it. If people do something wrong to us, we would be pretty upset if we found out that they would go scot-free. So justice and judgment has to come on injustices, but in Jesus Christ, in the Passover lamb in the son that was bringing the light, in the rescuer king. When judgment comes, he has died in our place. And when his blood is applied to our lives, the judgment for all of our sins and all of our injustices can pass over ourselves so that we can be set free from guilt so that we can be set free from the forces that accuse us and that try and tell us that we're old now, that we will always be what we have always been, that we are doomed to repeat our past failures into that hopelessness and into that darkness and into that sin condition. Jesus stepped into our world and he brought us new hope where there was no hope. He brought us a peace and... He brought us an escape from judgment that we could never have without him. And in new Passover and in new Exodus, we can be innocent again. We can be pure again. We can experience and enjoy a new kind of freedom because we can be reborn. Why would this be? How could this be? This is... This is a reality for us because ever since the beginning of time, God knew that we would believe a lie about his goodness. And God knew that we would walk away from him and try and find goodness without him. And so God launched a rescue operation. And it started with Abraham, but it didn't end with Abraham. And it involved Israel, but it was never meant to exclude the other people of the world and it involved religion and temple and law, but all of those were signposts to something that was greater than the law and greater than the temple. Until finally, on the very first Christmas morning, the sun dawned over the world. The sun of God, the light of the world, the hope of humanity. Jesus the King. Jesus the Messiah. Jesus our hope. It's no wonder we call him our savior. Come on. Can you worship him this morning? And just when we get to the point where we think it might be too late, we're, we're kind of with Nicodemus, you know, how can this be? When we get to the point where we think we, we might be too old or maybe our path just might be permanent, Jesus tells us, you can be reborn. I can make you brand new, brand new. See, mom, you remember those moments in the delivery room, right? With the fear, the excitement, the uncertainty, all the questions that you had, the nervousness of everything that was happening and going on, the fear, the pain, the holding on, 
the let go, the rest, the contract. I'm getting tired just talking about it again. You remember those moments. You remember that time. You remember that day. See, the thing is, there are going to be a lot of other moments, and we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. There are going to be a lot of other moments in your life that define your motherhood. The home that you make for your kids. The memories that you give your kids. The times you were there to pick them up when they fall and to kiss the hurt away. To kiss the boo-boo away, right? Kids got skinned knees. I mean, it looks like it's been through the meat grinder. And they're saying, kiss it, kiss it. I'm like, go talk to your mother and she'll kiss it for you. The time when you put Band-Aids on. The time when you read them a bedtime story and tucked them in. The time when you saw them go to kindergarten for the, last, for the first time, maybe for the last time, <laughs> depending on how bad they were, I don't know. The time when you packed their lunch and left the notes. The time when you sing them with them in the car. The time you dance around with them in the kitchen. You need to dance in your home. Hello, somebody. That's some good advice right there. You need to, you need to boogaloo with your kids. Let your kids enjoy your home. Make your home the funnest, most enjoyable, most beautiful place on the planet for your kids. There are going to be so many other moments that define your motherhood. If you're a dad, there are going to be so many other moments that define your fatherhood and the times that you were there with your kids and for your kids. But there's something about that moment, the beginning of it all. Those times and the pain and the uncertainty and and going through that experience when finally that baby was born and all of the pain was somehow worth it and all of the fear somehow went away and, and that new life began in that moment. You will never forget. We never forget that. Every year we celebrate our birthday. There's something about that moment, the beginning the first time when they breathe the air of a new world. So it is with us. There are going to be a lot of experiences in your following Jesus. There are going to be a lot of moments, a lot of things that you do, a lot of prayers that you pray that are going to define your following Jesus and your Christianity. But there's going to be something about that beginning. There's going to be something about that new birth. There's going to be something that you never forget when you remember what it was like to walk up to a baptismal tank and and to be seated there and because of your faith to be laid and your your, your past laid to rest in the waters of baptism and you come out of those waters to begin a brand new life. You're going to do a lot of other things as a Christian, but there's something about the beginning that you will never, never forget. When God fills your lungs, fills your mouth with the breath and the wind of heaven for the very first time. When you come alive to a new reality, when you come alive to a new existence and your past has been washed, oh, come on, somebody. Come on, the guilt and the shame of who you were and how many times you failed has been laid to rest and Jesus makes us alive to a brand new possibility. When we become something that not only have we never been before, but something that we did not even think was possible. And we open new and spiritual eyes and we experience new and spiritual existence. We pray prayers in new ways and we say new words and we interact with our world with, our, with eyes and hearts wide open because Jesus 
has made us new. We have been born again. For more information about City Grace, you can find us online at citygrace.church. We'll see you next week.